Let's get started with a word of prayer, if we could. Our Father, we are grateful for the privilege to come together as the church. Pray that you would, by your Spirit, show us the truth out of Scripture. Lord, we are in desperate need of you to illumine our minds and give us an understanding that comes from above, not the reasonings of men. So, Lord, that's what we ask you for this morning. And thank you for the great privilege we have of simply opening the Bible and talking about it this morning. Many people don't have such freedoms, and so we don't take them for granted. We give thanksgiving to you for them. Lord, pray that you would be with those who couldn't be with us this morning, that you'd strengthen them and encourage them. Lord, that you would uh, help them to grow in Jesus Christ and to bring glory to your name, which is our desire this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. This is week number seven in our study of eschatology. And for several weeks here, we've been just walking through the books of Genesis, Exodus, got all the way to Numbers, a little bit into Deuteronomy, just talking about the emphasis that we see in Scripture about the land that God originally promised to Abraham, then promised to Isaac, then promised to Jacob. Jacob's name changed to Israel. Israel has 12 sons. Uh, they all go into captivity for 400 years into Egypt. Uh, the Scripture says after 430 years they came out, meaning that all of it wasn't captivity. Uh, There were 400 years of captivity, 30 years before they were enslaved. And as they come out, of course, Moses is God's chosen leader. And some of the first things that God says to Moses about why he's bringing them out of Egypt, not only are they oppressed and he hears their cry, but it's so he can lead them to the promised land. And that is emphasized multiple times Um, as God first appears in the burning bush and then appears to him later that God continues, and it's God who's bringing this up, that it's the promised land. And you'll remember that just before Moses dies at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, God takes him up on a mountain, first time that Moses has seen all the land and shows him all the land that is going to belong to Israel. Uh, Moses isn't allowed to go into the land. Uh, Joshua will lead the people. But God at least shows it to Moses. And you remember part of this, uh, the reason that it was delayed for them to go and take the land when they first came out of Egypt is because they sent 12 spies into the land. Ten of the spies said, we can't take them. Two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, said, we can take them. Uh, The people side with the ten. And so as a consequence, all the people, every one of them, uh, who are 20 and older, um, we looked at it last week, there were a little over a million men um, all die in the desert. It takes 40 years for that to happen, 39 years. But uh, every single one of those people die. And so the people that go into the promise, well, everyone except for Moses, Caleb, and Joshua, everybody else dies. Um, And so as they go into the promised land, this is a new generation. Um, I don't know if there were kids born while they were out in the desert or not, 
Um, I, I tend to believe there weren't because when they get ready to go into the promised land again, there are only a million men. And so basically they replaced the million they had before. So maybe those kids were already born before they went in, uh, into the wilderness. I don't know. We don't get any details about where their children born out in the wilderness or not. One thing's for sure, when they go into the promised land, they're all uncircumcised because they didn't circumcise their kids when they were born and raised in, in Egypt. And so that kind of tends me to believe they were already born before they... And actually, he says to them as they go into the promised land that you saw the things that I did to Egypt. Kind of, again, indicating they were already born before they ever left Egypt. Anyway, that doesn't really matter, right? Um, just some details. So we were right up to the point at the end of Deuteronomy where Moses dies, Joshua is taking the leadership, getting ready to go into, Israel, go into the promised land. But before we do that, there's a couple of things that I want to point out that are very important as the people go into the promised land to remember what was previously said to them. Um, because it becomes very significant in what they do in the promised land. So the first place I want to start is over in Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're going to back up a couple of times here. Um, some of this I covered, some of it I didn't, but it really is important when we look at what happens when they do go into the promised land and how the lands are divided and who takes what and that these verses um, become important. So Deuteronomy chapter 7, this is the first time that God told the people how they would take the land, exactly what was going to take place when they went into the promised land. So 7 verse 16, and I'll read a few of them here. It says, You shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you, your eyes shall not pity them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw, and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and, out, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet nest against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. You shall not dread them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away the nation's before you, little by little, you will not be able to put an end to them quickly, for the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them before you and will throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. He will deliver their kings into your hands so that you will make their name perish from under heaven. No man will be able to stand before you until you have destroyed them. The graven images of their gods you are to burn by fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, or you will, 
or you will be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not bring an abomination into your house, and like it come under the ban. You shall utterly detest it, and you shall utterly abhor it, for it is something banned. Okay, so there's a couple of things I want to point out here. First of all, you see the word ban. Banned, banned, you shan't take it because it's banned. And he, he says specifically what it is. It's the gold and the silver that's on the graven images. That you're not to take that for yourself. All the other gold and silver, the coins and the utensils, you could take that. Just you can't take this because it's banned. All right, that'll be important uh, when we go into the promised land. Something else I want to point out is in verse 16 where he says, you shall consume all the peoples. And then down in verse 24, you will make their name perish from under heaven. So what are they going to do to all the people? They're going to kill them. Not some of them. Every single one of them, including the babies, the girls, the women, the men, the boys, everybody. You're to kill every single one of them. Genocide. Wipe them out. Okay, will be very important as we go into the promised land. And then um, in verse 22, you notice that God says that even though he's going to use the Israelites to do it, this wiping out of the nations is something that God is doing, not the people are doing. He's commanding them and they're obeying him, but this is God wiping out peoples, people groups. And so that's important for us to remember in today's time, right? That I don't know of anybody who says that God told us to wipe out all these peoples unless you're a radical and then he clearly, that's some of what they claim is that God told us that we're to destroy all of you. And then the most important thing I want to point out in this passage, verse 22 Notice what God says to the people. He says that we're going to drive them out, but how? Little by little, it'll not happen quickly, right? So as we get into Joshua, where they are wiping out people, they're driving people out of the land, they're taking land. We should not expect that to happen rapidly. We should expect it to happen little by little by little. Now they may wipe out a whole people group and take their land, but in general, in the overall plan, this is God's plan from the very beginning, it would not happen fast. It would happen little by little. That will be extremely important as we get into the promised land and what actually takes place little by little. So that passage, so those are some things that I want to point out. Now, um, this is in Deuteronomy. So this is, you remember, Deuteronomy takes place in really 30 days. It's the 30 days before they cross the Jordan River. So this is right at the end of the 40 years of wandering um, getting ready to go into the promised land. So this is God reminding them. But look way back in Exodus in chapter 23. 
And so this is at the beginning. This is before um, the this is before the Ten Commandments. This is before the spies go into the land. This is before the graven image. Before all of that, this is God's word to them about how they're going to take the land. 23, Exodus 23, beginning in verse 27. There, this is God speaking to the people about the conquest of the land. And he says, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites. I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. And notice what he says, I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of of the land into your hand and will drive them out before you. So just something to remember there. The land of the Philistines is the land between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea. The Sea of the Philistines is the Mediterranean Sea. So in order to take their land, which he says you're going to, you've got to make it all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And then going the other direction, going eastward, you've got to go all the way to the Euphrates River, which is all the way across the Arabian Desert. And you've got to take the cities that are on the western bank of the Euphrates in order to make it all the way to the Euphrates. Okay, so that's, that's a long way. I mean, the Euphrates River is where um, Nebuchadnezzar took the inhabitants of Jerusalem and took them into captivity all the way over to the Euphrates River into the Fertile Valley. So just keep those things in mind that you've got to go all the way to the Mediterranean Sea and you've got to go all the way to the Euphrates River. Go ahead, David. How do you know what's going back north to the Euphrates? Well, the Euphrates, I mean, it does curve and come across the north part of um, where, yeah, above Syria. It comes, it does, but it doesn't go all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And he does later give northern boundaries that you've got to come to. And when the guys um, settle on the east side of the bank of the Jordan, there are three tribes that settle, two and a half tribes that settle on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan. He says that their land is all the way to the rising of the sun, which means a long way eastward. So... Um, and, and he, you know, he, the scriptures, the original, does not say Euphrates, by the way. If you look in most of your Bibles, it's probably in italics because it's not there. So it's, it's, it's the translators writing into the scripture what they think it means. Okay, but there is no other river east of um, 
the Jordan River until you get to the Euphrates River because it's desert. So anyway, um, just have to always keep those kind of things in mind. Um, okay, so you notice again in this passage that God says that it won't happen in a year. I'll drive them out little by little in verse 30 until you become fruitful and take possession. To me, that means they're going to go into the land and then year by year, they're going to continue to take more and more and more and more land. And they're going to, little by little, drive these people out of the land. So keep that in mind as we go to Joshua. And there will be some very specific things that the scripture says about this process. This is God's process when they first come out of Egypt. And this is still his process 40 years later as they get ready to go across the Jordan. That they'll take the land little by little. It won't happen fast. Now I'll go ahead and give you a preview. The scripture does say that as Joshua fights, it takes a long time. Now we'll define what that long time is because I think the scriptures give pretty good clarity on that. So um, these are just things that are coming, but I want this to be in your mind so that we can refer back to it. Now, notice in verse 32 and 33 of that passage in Exodus 23, very important, that you will make no covenant with them are with their gods. Now I'll tell you, when they go into the land, the second people they come to, they make a covenant with them. First people, no. Second people, yes. They make a covenant. Now they're deceived into it, but the scripture says exactly why they were deceived. So these are things that we're going to look at as we go into Joshua. Because they're important. Don't make any covenants with any of the people. Why not? Why not make a covenant? Because you're supposed to kill every one of them. There's supposed to be no survivors. And, you, and, and actually they'll say it. We can't kill these people because we made a covenant by God not to kill them. So they put themselves in a box. They can't do what God told them to do because they swore by God's name that they wouldn't do it to the people that they're supposed to kill. We'll see that in living color as we get in, into uh, Joshua. Okay, um, one more thing I want to put in your mind because this sets up the mind of Joshua as he goes into the land. Very significant. Look back in, I want to show you a couple of things. Look back in Exodus 33. And remember, this is early. Um, Exodus takes place in the first year after coming out of Egypt. The last thing they do is establish the tabernacle and God's presence comes into the tabernacle. That's the first year in the wilderness. They then wander in the book of Numbers for 39 years. Then in Leviticus, you're given the law again, which was given in Deuteronomy. And then in, sorry, given in Exodus. And then in Deuteronomy, you only have 30 days. 
So Exodus is a year, Numbers is 39 years, and Leviticus is a very brief time, Deuteronomy is a month. That's the way the scriptures line up. So here we are in the first year again, back in Exodus 33, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each of the entrance of his tent. So this happened repeatedly. That Moses would go outside of the camp, pitch a tent, go into the tent, and God would come and block Moses in the tent and block anybody else from coming to the tent and speak to Moses. The scripture says face to face. We all know that that's um, not literally what happened because no man can look on God and not die, right? But it's, it speaks of the intimacy of the conversation, that they would talk with one another. Now, um, you remember that after Moses had smashed the uh, original Ten Commandments, they had taken down the graven image. They slaughtered 3,000 of their own people for worshiping that image. The people repent. God calls Moses back up onto the mountain. And Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I can't show you my glory, but if you'll get in a crack in the rock, I'll hold my hand over you and I'll let you see my backside as I leave. And so when that happens... Look in Exodus 34, the very next chapter, which is where Moses has interceded for the people. God has allowed his presence to pass before Moses. And then down in verse 29, it came about, this is Exodus 34, verse 29. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai And the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down the mountain. That Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on the Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his eye, over his face. So Moses is literally shining with the glory of God. And it frightens all the people. Now, the last verse of this chapter leads me to believe that Moses' face from then forward shone 
Because notice what it says. It says, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went to speak with him. So the only time Moses did not veil his face was when he was speaking with God. All the other time he veiled his face because it was shining and frightened all the people. Okay, so this is a very significant and awesome thing that Moses not only met with God, but the very presence of God was on Moses so that his face shone. So you can imagine that if you got invited into the tent to meet with God and Moses, that you would be a little overcome, that you would be a little overwhelmed, that you would be afraid to go do that, right? Well, that's exactly what happens to Joshua at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, that God tells Moses to get Joshua and both of you come into the tent of meeting. Now, I, I, think, I think this is right. The tent of meeting was just a pup tent to start with. Moses would take it out in, into, you know, a ways from the camp and all the people could see him and they would see the pillar and Moses would meet with God. But once the tabernacle was built, I believe the tent of meeting was the tent in the center of the tabernacle. Inside that tent, there was a veil. And behind the veil is where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat was. And God's presence dwelt on that mercy seat. And so nobody went behind the veil except for the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur would go and make atonement for the sins of the people. They would tie a rope to his leg just in case God struck him dead. They could drag him out of there because they couldn't go in. Don't know if that ever happened, but might have. Um, so I believe that became the tent of meeting. And I've, there's a couple of verses um, that we'll get to later that over in Joshua where it says that. At the end of Joshua, they go and they finally erect the tabernacle in the promised land near Shechem. And it says they call it the tent of meeting. So I believe that the tabernacle is actually the tent of meeting. So when you get to Exodus 40, after the erection of the tabernacle, so I think the tent of meeting is now the tent inside the middle of the tabernacle, God has invited, um, is that right? No, it's in Deuteronomy 31, sorry. Deuteronomy 31, 14 is where I want to go. Um, that God invites not only Moses, but Joshua because he wants to commission Joshua. But God only uses one verse to commission Joshua. The rest of it is not about Joshua. So beginning in verse 21, 14 of chapter 31, everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall... That's not the right place. 31, 14. I was in 30. 14. 
Therefore, you are deserved the That's not it either. That's why you're sitting in the seats, to keep me straight. Helps to get to the right book. 31.14 Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the time for you to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of the meeting so I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. First time Joshua's been in the tent of meeting with Moses. The only time Joshua is in the tent of meeting with Moses and God. The Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood at the doorway of the tent. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Now, what do you think is going through Joshua's mind? He's getting ready to be made the leader and God just said, these people are going to forsake me and they're going to play the harlot. So Joshua's got to be going, what? Right? Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they will be consumed and many evils and troubles will come upon them so so that they will say in that day, it is not because... Our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us, but I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods. And Joshua's got to be going, this is getting worse. Now therefore, write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it on their lips so that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. For when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. Then it shall come about when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify before them as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants." For I know their intent, which they are developing today, before I brought them into the land which I swore. So Moses wrote this song the same day, and he taught it to the sons of Israel. Then here's Joshua's one verse. Then he commissioned Joshua the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the sons of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. Who speaks that to Joshua? God does, in the tent. Now, I ask you a question. As Joshua is in the land, does he forget about this? I mean, you're in the tent of meeting with Moses and with God. You have the veil that you can't go behind because you'll be struck dead because that's where the presence of God is. God comes and stands at the door so that you can't get out. So you're caught between the door and God, and God speaks directly to you. Do you think you're going to forget that? Probably not. Probably not. Very important for you to remember that as we see Joshua 
in the land that God promised to the people of Israel. Now, was this a good message? It's pretty negative, right? That I'm going to burn in my anger, that I'm going to hide my face, that they're, I'm going to do to them what we do to the people when you first go in. I mean, it's all not good. They're going to play the harlot. They're going to turn to other gods. So it's a very negative message. But he says before that, you're going to be prosperous and you're going to eat the fruit of the land. But when you get to that point, then you're going to turn to other gods. So I don't think Joshua ever forgot what God said. And we'll see that when we finally get to his deathbed, way over at the end of Joshua, that he says exactly this to the people. He knows what's going to happen after he dies. Okay, so all of that just to set up and preview so we could get to the book of Joshua. All right, now we're going to go through the book of Joshua chapter by chapter. But pretty quickly, I'm only going to point out a couple of things to you that are important. You can, you can take the book of Joshua and you can sit down and read it in one sitting. It's 24 chapters. It's not that long. And I would suggest that you do that. Just sit down and read it from front to end so that you know what's in there and that you'll see these passages that I'm going to point out to you. Now, in the Joshua 1 is just as they prepare to go into the promised land. They actually don't go in in Joshua 1. But I want you to notice verse 11 because this is what's in their mind. Joshua assumes command, then Joshua commanded the people, the officers of the people, saying, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you are to cross this Jordan to go in, go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. So it's very clear this is going to become your land. And then down in verse 15, until he's speaking to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, who had previously gone to Moses and said, please give us this land in Gilead to the west of the, to the east of the Jordan um, as our land. We don't want to cross the Jordan and get any of that land We'll take this land as our own. And Moses said, you're just trying to get out of going to fight. Because they had already destroyed the Midianites in that land. And they said no. And so Moses says, okay, if you'll promise that all your fighting men will go into the promised land and fight with your brothers until they possess the land, then I'll give you this land. And they agreed to that. So they build cities in, in their land and they put their women and children in it, and they leave. All the fighting men leave, and they cross the Jordan. Matter of fact, they lead the array across the Jordan. Okay, so here he's saying to them, to those people who are going to get to go home only after they possess the land. Okay, he says in verse 15, until the Lord gives your brothers rest, and he gives you, 
as he gives you, and they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them, then you shall return to your own land and possess that which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan, notice, toward the sunrise. Long way east. Keep walking east and you, the sun continues to rise until you get to the Euphrates and that's the, the border of the land that God originally promised. Okay, so notice, and this is very important, that these guys cannot go home until Israel possesses the land. Okay? And I will tell you now, that happens. They do go home. Okay? So, and the whole point that I'm driving toward is that, I mean, I've told you this, I believe that Israel never fulfilled the promise of Abraham that God gave to Abraham to possess the land. But I'll tell you, these guys go home and the scripture says that Israel possesses the land. But we need to look at exactly what it says. Okay? Otherwise you get confused and you make assumptions and then where does that lead you? Okay, so that's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is about the spies going to Jericho and Rahab hides the spies. And so they promise Rahab that when they come and destroy Jericho, that she and all that are in her household, and she gets her father and her brothers and their wives and their children all to come to her household. All those people are to be protected. Okay, so that's the story of chapter 2. Okay, then you come to chapter 3. And this is where Israel crosses um, the Jordan, much like they cross the Red Sea. Now, the Red Sea is actually today called what? You've got two bodies of water that come up and form, they're really part of the ocean, but they call them seas. You got the Gulf of Suez and you got the Gulf of Aqaba. And they went around the edge of the Gulf of Aqaba, um, of the Suez, but they crossed the Gulf of Aqaba. So it's not a river. It's the ocean that got held back. Okay? So um, it's not a flowing river like the Jordan is, but the Jordan did the exact same thing that happened at the Gulf of Aqaba, the, what they called the Red Sea, is that the waters were held back and they walked across on dry land, exactly like had happened before to their parents when their parents led them across the dry bed. So that's how they cross the, the Jordan. God holds back the waters just as he did at the Dead Sea. So... A very miraculous thing. And by the way, God didn't do it when the waters were low in Jordan. He did it when they overflowed their banks, which they do every year. So he did it at the hardest time to do it, not at the easiest time to do it. Just like God, right? Always taking the hard road. So he held them back. Now, notice in this chapter, 
in verse 10 what God says to the people. For we have heard how, well, this is actually, um, this is actually Rahab speaking, I believe. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And that's not the verse that I want. I want to get to chapter 3 and verse 10. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, that he will assuredly dispossess before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. We've seen this before, right? How are they going to get the land? God is going to dispossess those groups of people, meaning he's going to take their land away from them. Now, actually, it's the exact same word to mean possess or dispossess. Same word. It just depends on how it's used. So God is here taking this land away from these people groups and giving it to the Israelites. So it's not the Israelites who are doing it. And you always need to keep that in mind in Joshua. It's God who is doing it. He's using the hands of the Israelites, but it's actually God who is doing it. Okay, we're going to stop here in a minute. Chapter 4, they build a monument to commemorate the crossing of the Jordan. Chapter 5 is where the Israelites are all circumcised because none of them have been circumcised since they became slaves in Egypt. So they all, are, all the men are circumcised. Manna ends and they begin to eat off the fruit of the land. All that happens in chapter 5. And very significantly, the captain of the hosts of the Lord comes to meet with Joshua. Now, I believe this is right at the end of chapter 5. And in chapter 6, he begins to speak. I believe this is the pre-incarnate Lord because he uses God and I interchangeably as he begins to talk to Joshua. So this is the pre-incarnate Christ who appears at the end of chapter 5. In verse 13, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him and his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And the man says, take your shoes off because you're on holy ground. Now, that would only be God who would be commanding that. So this is the pre-incarnate Christ. And he has a sword drawn, not because he's going to kill Joshua, but because he's going to lead the battle against all the peoples. Okay, so we'll pick up here next time. Chapter 6, which is the, the destruction of Jericho. And then we'll quickly move through all the battles. There are 31 kings who are, who are 
destroyed um, before you get to chapter 12. So from 6 to 11, there are 31 kings who are, and their peoples who are destroyed. So we'll quickly move through those. Okay? That's what we're going to pick up next time.